Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. Welcome to episode one of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. I'm Eric Wolf, and joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. And joining us in the studio today is Ari Weinzweig, the co-owner and founding partner of the Zingerman's family of companies. Hello, Ari. How are you? Good, thanks. Ari, in the podcast series, we wanted to hear from um, leaders from the food and beverage travel industry who have a remarkable story to share to help inspire our listeners. And, you know, I was thinking about um, some of the conversations we've had. And, and, you know, Ari, in your situation, you pretty much are the remarkable story. <laughs> well, I think, there's, I think, honestly, everybody has a remarkable story. Uh, if you if you look hard enough, but I'm happy to be the one that you're interviewing today. <laughs> I mean, you, you look back at um, what you you founded, you know, back in in 1982 when everything started. Um, yeah. Did you have any hope or dream that your company would grow into the family companies and and become a tourist destination in Central Michigan? No, in honesty, I didn't think I'd live to be 30, but <laughs> I, I did, and uh, we've grown quite a bit. I I would say that we. The vision that we wrote for ourselves, and obviously there's a lot of topics we'll cover in our talk today, but the vision that we wrote, uh, Paul, my partner, and I wrote in 1994 for 2009, uh, which was uh, about six pages long and uses the visioning process, which we're uh, very much wedded to, uh, basically 90% of that happened. And so did I know in 1982, not I didn't have a clue or any intent that this is what we, but uh what we wrote in 94 really came true. Uh, I guess what I would say also is that in 80, from the beginning, uh, I was very intent that we have a very unique place. I don't like copies of other things. I don't mean they're evil, but they're just not very interesting. Um, and I always, from the beginning, was adamant that we only have one uh, store and that we would not open multiple units of the same store because just my experience, uh, which I think is really relevant for your audience in this in this context that when you have something really special and unique people want to go to it uh you know the upside of having lots of stores is you can do more business but the downside is i don't think anybody drives more than three miles to go to starbucks (laughs) i know it's that's for sure um so yeah, so from the beginning, I guess in, in a way i was very clear that we wanted something special that would be a destination spot and when you started, was this business an instant success or were there times when you wondered if you weren't going to make it at all? I still wonder. <laughs> I, I think that anybody that's honest with themselves is wondering all the time. And I think you're, you know, I, I think uh, with all due respect to the press, I mean, people pronounce you a success, but it doesn't really make you a success. Uh, I think you're succeeding and failing constantly every minute multiple times and I I think it's just over time you create uh, 
you know, a greater amount of successes than of failures, but I, I think they all kind of coexist in the ecosystem. You know, Ari, you mentioned uh, visioning and how important that was to you, and that's also um, in one of your books you talk about that. Visioning is yeah. absolutely critical to getting the business right. When you were starting, when you started Zingerman's back in 1982, did you know what the company was going to be when it grew up, or was that all new to you? When we started it, uh, I mean, we, I didn't know anything about visioning um, the way that we now teach it and I write about it, but, but I think that visioning, I think that visioning is a natural human process that every three-year-old is quite adept at, uh, but the size of other than a few people who become known as visionaries and everybody kind of looks to them for these brilliant strokes of genius, but I, I think that everybody has it inside them. Uh, so, and I, and I think that anybody who started a business or, or a nonprofit or really anything had a, has a vision of what they want to create. I mean, businesses, uh, unlike mushrooms, if you're dealing with adventure travel in the woods, mushrooms do just spring up, you know, after a rainstorm, but businesses, somebody had to have the idea that they were going to create something. So even if it wasn't a very, uh, aspirational vision, they had a vision of building something. That's why at hindsight, I would say, I mean, oh, Paul and I had a, a, you know, even though we didn't write it down the way we would now, we had a pretty clear picture of what we wanted to create. Uh, like I said, we wanted something really unique. We didn't want a copy of something from New York or Chicago or L.A. Uh, we wanted something, a place where you could get great food, great service, and create a great place for people to work, but do it in a very down-to-earth setting, which, which, you know, we still have now, where you can have the president of the University of Michigan at one table and a family with little kids at the next table and a truck driver who was delivering something to the back door coming around front to grab a sandwich and and having them all in the same business and and we love that and then from the beginning like I said I knew that I for me you know it was really important just to have one and create something really unique so that was our vision I mean I couldn't have explained it to you necessarily as concisely in 82 as I can do it now yeah it's wonderful that you've made a reality of your vision I had a question that was a little specific. So how did you decide what to stock at your store? I know you wanted to offer you know, really great products, but did you start yeah. locally with you know, artisans and then started to have a worldwide offering? And you know, what drove that decision? Uh, no, it's really more the other way. I mean, you know, remember 1982 in the United States, and there wasn't a lot of locally grown produce that was coming to market. There, you know, I mean, the uh -huh. American culinary scene has grown quality and and uh quantity you know rapidly over the last 25 30 something years but uh well we knew that we wanted the you know all the traditional jewish stuff that both of us had grown up on so that was easy uh to know what we want it's hard to produce properly but uh you know every corned beef chopped liver chicken soup linces <laughs> you know all the stuff that we had grown up on that you couldn't get in ann arbor and but also from the beginning we wanted traditional you know, really great traditional foods from other parts of the world. So, um, you know, with all due respect for local, which I'm all for, but, you know, some things don't grow here. So black pepper doesn't come from Michigan. Olive oil doesn't come from Michigan. <laughs> doesn't come from Michigan. Uh, you know, so, so it means that you're reaching out and having written about it later in part one of the Guide to Good Leading, I mean, our definition of local is less per se about geography, although obviously that's important too, but it's more about having a relationship with the people that you buy from and the people that you sell to because there's people often buying locally, but they don't know where they don't know the farmer. They don't know the place they don't go or there's producers selling locally, but they never go in and taste the food, you know? So, uh, 
it's it's really about a, a relationship. I, I just actually wrote an article about uh, black pepper that we just upgraded the, the telecherry pepper that we use at Zingerman's Roadhouse, which is our sit-down restaurant, uh, not because we had quality problems, but just because we had the opportunity to take it from a, you know, seven and a half, eight out of 10 up to a nine out of 10. Yeah. And now we can work, you know, with one guy there through uh, an importing family in Montreal who we know really well. And this guy works with, you know, farmers who have one to two acre farms. So we're able to really have a relationship and make a difference. And, you know, the, the we pay more for it, but it's better quality and the impact on people's lives you know in Kerala I mean to get a little bit what to you and me is a small amount of money here there could make the difference between having a nicer house or no house uh, and so it's it's a really nice thing so for me that's local even though you know I'm not going to be there next weekend. <laughs> You've got a deli, a bakehouse, a train, catering and special events operations, mail order, a creamery, a roadhouse restaurant, a Korean restaurant, a coffee operation, a candy operation, a farm, and a training arm. That's a lot. Did you go through this process where every two or three years you wanted to start something new, or how did these different businesses unfold? No, it's the other way. Uh, we wrote the vision, as I said, in 94 for 2009 that said we would have a dozen or so businesses by 2009. We didn't quite make a dozen, but we got close. Uh, but the way we work is that each business has to have a managing partner or partners in it. That's somebody who owns part of it and really has a passion for what that business does. And so the process actually begins with them sharing their passion and their vision. And then we work collaboratively from there uh, to build. So uh, rather than us deciding what's best, it's really them saying, here's something I want to invest the rest of my life or devote the rest of my life to. Uh, and then us working collaboratively with them to see if we want to do it. And then if we do, to see if we can do it. So uh, what I've learned the hard way is ideas are cheap. I got thousands of them. It's not hard for me to come up with them. What's hard is who's going to be in there 12 years later, getting up at five in the morning or whatever, you know, going in, trying to keep pushing the envelope to improve and to fix the little things that inevitably go wrong every day. And how did you build this brand for yourself that, you know, other people bought into and felt so... Well, I mean, I think, I think the brand is just a, it's a term that is basically the personality of the business. I mean, and everybody has one. It may not be attractive, but every, <laughs> every business has an identity. I mean, and people's, you know, perception and experience with that business or it's the same for nonprofits. Their experience with the organization is what forms this image. And so it, it isn't really any different than an individual. I mean, if you meet somebody, what makes you decide that you want to pursue the relationship further? And if you pursue it further, you may decide quickly it wasn't what you thought, but if it works out well, then you continue in the relationship. And, you know, I think a, a lot of things, but I think if you, when you're doing something you believe in, your energy is attractive to people. That's true, whether you're Martin Luther King or Gandhi or uh, a poet or an author or a parent. I mean, whoever it is, when they're doing something they're really passionate about, I think generally people are drawn to it. And, he, but you know, even if let's say you and I might not be drawn to the concept or the philosophy of the person, other people are. And I mean, that's not always a good thing. You can look to people in history who were doing kind of horrible things, but they did attract a lot of followers. And a lot of that is their, you know, the passion that they had, even if the intent was not what you and I would admire. They you got to find your tribe. According to Seth well, and so, so, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, I think that, uh, 
you know, when you're true to who you're, to your values and your beliefs, it, it creates positive energy. So uh, that's easier said than done. I don't think anybody sets out to not be true to their values, but uh, the more you stay true to them, I think the more your energy is appealing. And then, you know, just the obvious of if you don't do something special and different, who really cares, right? So uh, people want to feel special and different, I think. And one of the best ways to feel special and different in a group is to join a group that's special and different. Mm-hmm. Would you tell the story about where the Zingerman's name came from? I was reading that on your website, and I think yeah. it ties into the branding discussion we were just having. I thought you gave it to us. Isn't that, wasn't that true? No. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, we were going to actually call it Greenberg's, which was named after an elderly uh, New York Jewish woman who was a customer of Paul and Mike Monahan's at Monahan's Seafood Market, which they owned across the street from the deli. And uh, she, you know, was sort of a character, and so we were going to name it after her. And then a week before we were going to open, uh, we found out from a guy who owned the name that he he had the name registered. In those days, you couldn't just go online and find out. It took months to get your information returned from Lansing, from the state capital. And uh, anyway, so he refused to let us use it. He was going to franchise. He was going national, all this other great stuff. So we had like five days or three days or something to come up with a new name. So we sat at uh, Paul's house on the floor because there was no furniture. And we drank a few beers and we brainstormed names. And we wanted either an A or a Z uh, to end up uh, at the beginning or the end of a list. And Paul's last name is Saginaw, which was Sagin Or in Russia, which means seer of light, which is very poetic and inspiring, but was anglicized at Ellis Island, as so many uh, names were at the turn of the last century, to Saginaw, which in Michigan is a Native American tribe in a mid-sized industrial town, both of which are perfectly fine, but don't make you think of corned beef right away. Mm. (laughs) And uh, my last name, although you did a nice job, is generally unpronounceable unless you speak Yiddish or German. So those two were out, and we brainstormed names, and we ended up with Zingerman's. Yeah, it's a good name. I mean, I like it. It's, you know, it, it feels good. It feels like a place where you want to go shopping. Well, good. Has so, a far zing to it. so far, it's working out. How did you start the mail order business and when? Well, it's, it's the one that started completely organically because it started just by people moving away from Ann Arbor and then calling up and going like, you're not going to believe this, but I can't get X. And so we would, you know, they wanted it and we just, like any good new business person, we're just like, sure, we'll <laughs> ship it to you. <laughs> we don't know and how, but we're going to figure it out. So that's really how it started. I mean, I don't really know what we ended up later picking some year. I can't remember that it was formally started, but I mean, it really just, you know, it was one bottle of something a week or one piece of cheese a week or whatever. And, you know, now it's like whatever, $15 million. So wow. today it's a much more mindfully run uh, organization, you know, with about 75 people working year round. And then we hire about 300 more at the holidays. Your um, business expands to employ a thousand people over the, the holiday season I was reading. That's, yeah. um, that's, that's a lot of people. Have you ever seen any data on the economic impact of your um, businesses on their local area? I haven't. I, I mean, I, I can, I don't know what the economic impact I mean, I assume it's very positive. I, I think the bigger, I mean, the, the the bigger question for me is the social impact because I, I think that uh, there are a lot of people in the world who hate going to work. There's a lot of people who leave work angry every day. Uh, nobody's really paying attention to it, but when you leave work angry and unhappy every day, that 
emotion comes home with you and there's no way it's not brought into your family or your other interactions in society and it's not hard to sort of follow the process if the parent comes home angry every day the kid grows up with anger the kid takes the anger to school it increases the odds of fights and dysfunction at school which means the parent is pulled out of what they want to do to go deal with unhappy teachers and have more fights with their kid and you know i think that the negative impact is is just is really huge but nobody's looking at it at all mm -hmm. um you know whereas when somebody enjoys going to work and feels respected and treated with dignity and believes in what they're doing uh, and in our case is actually learning techniques about how to work that are 100 applicable to their personal lives too which we could get into later but all, all of that creates a positive benefit so instead of you know the, the other one is sort of strip mining of the soul uh, which leaves you know barren uh, soil behind and it's very difficult to grow anything positive in that and the other one is really about a generative uh, energy creation so that people are learning growing contributing more to the community they learn how to lead so they they contribute in their nonprofits and their community or activities it's uh their kids grow up in a healthier setting i mean so all in all it just creates a, a, a much more a much healthier community i think and i'm not taking all the credit i mean i think it's a group effort and you have to have people who want to be part of that speaking of social impact Ari, can you talk a little bit a bit about uh, food gatherers and why you decided to start that yeah, it was Paul's idea. I, I think it was 88 that we started it. Uh, it was his idea to do it. I mean, at that time, there were very few organizations like that. It's an organization that picks up perishable food from restaurants, hotels, food stores, et cetera, where, you know, historically and even to this day in many communities, it's just going to waste. I mean, not out of malice, but you got lettuce that's slightly brown that you know, not serve, or you got a soup that you slightly over salted that you're not going to serve, but it's nutritionally fine. And, you know, meanwhile, almost inevitably, there's people going hungry, oftentimes six blocks or six miles away, that all they had was, you know, at best was access to government uh, warehouse dry goods, mostly sugar and flour and sugar and flour based foods. And so the idea was to get this fresh, nutritious product usually within a day, you know, to the feeding sites that already existed. So not really to create the feeding sites because most of the churches or community organizations often had uh, community kitchens where they were trying to do feeding, but they didn't have access to raw material that was really healthy to work with. So uh, we funded it out of the deli. Uh, we paid somebody who worked at the deli to do the initial research. We used our own van, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, it is what it is, but it's, it's uh, today it's its own nonprofit that we contribute a lot, but happily many other people do too. And uh, last year, I think delivered over 5 million pounds of food in Washtenaw County. And, you know, we're a fairly well-to-do county and there's still people going hungry on top of that. So you can only imagine what it's like in a less healthy uh, economic ecosystem you know, there's even more people. All right, a lot of what you talk about is community focus, which is really nice to see, but there's no denying that your family of companies is a visitor destination. I mean, people are, are driving and yeah. coming to, to see. How many visitors do you get each year in your businesses? There's a lot too general. <laughs> I mean, are we talking I don't know. You don't really count. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't, we don't have any way to count. I mean, I don't, we don't track like who came from where, but clearly there's a lot that come from a long ways. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, we're there. I can see, you know, I talk to them. So it's, 
it's fairly evident that people come from great distance and you know they're not always coming some are coming like just for us uh, between all the things we have our baking school zinc train uh, it's very common now that people will drive from Chicago or Cleveland you know northern Michigan Pittsburgh you know whatever places that are three four hours five hours away uh, it's pretty common that people will drive for the weekend and I'll say like what are you doing here and they're like we came to eat <laughs> great <laughs> Uh, but with Zing Train, you know, with the training, I mean, we get people literally from all over the world with the bake, uh, which is our baking school. We get people all over the country come for that. Um, and when you put them all together, it's even better because you'll get, you know, there's, I see the same people, whatever, at the roadhouse on Friday night having dinner. I see them at the bakery taking a class on Saturday, and I often see them at the deli before that. And then I'll see them Sunday morning at the deli, you know, buying stuff to go back home again. So uh, without question, we're, we're, we're drawing a lot of people and, you know, Ann Arbor's a, a good town to come to. So it's not like we're in the middle of the desert, but I, I think that people generally will go someplace special. And this goes back to the whole thing of uniqueness. I mean, if what you have is basically the same as what people are going to get everywhere else, right? Why would they bother? I mean, our, our bakery, our creamery, our candy company and our coffee business are basically in a, in a industrial park, you know, on the edge of Ann Arbor where you barely could find it. I mean, cell phones have made it easier, but you know, and we like our retail shop in the bakery, you know, we wholesale to probably 150 accounts, but we have retail shops and all those and the retail shop at the bakehouse will do about $2 million in sales in a place nobody would even think as a business. I, I mean, if I had to put a number to it, it sounds like tens of thousands probably each year are descending upon. Oh yeah, I would imagine. I mean, it's hard to separate. I mean, because whatever, you got somebody who lives in Ann Arbor, but their relatives are here from San Diego, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it all goes together and, and you know, it's, I look at it as more of a fluid ecosystem. So, I mean, you got people who went to school here, they moved away, they're back to visit. You got uh, people who, you know, they came for something else. I just, there was a couple at the roadhouse the other night, super nice with their kids. I didn't really even talk to them, but I was just was nice to them. And, and then uh, the mother was standing by the uh, hostess stand. So I started chatting with her. Then they all came back. Then they were out front and when they were leaving and they were like, can we get a picture? And I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And she's like, well, I came for a medical conference, but we asked people where to eat and they told us this is where to go. So we've been here twice for dinner. We went to the deli before you know, we're going home tomorrow. So, you know, those are really great stories and they happen all the time for us, which is a, which is a cool thing and attributes all the work that everybody that works here has done because it's not an accident. Ari, you've been in the business for a while. Can you talk about any food trends that you've seen or that you've been surprised by? Well, I think that honestly, our job is to make the trends. I mean, so I, I think we do what we believe in. And then if we, if we do it well, other people copy it. And then three years later, everybody was behind it from the beginning. Uh, you know, I think clearly uh, looking back, my, my next book, I'm working on a collection of food essays from all the 30 years or whatever of writing them. Um, you know, so going back to essays that I wrote 20 years ago, it's interesting just to see, you know, how products that were hardly known then are now you know, much more widely available. I, I think without question, I mean, people have access to way better food. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people are eating much higher quality food. I mm -hmm. mean, clearly there's plenty of people eating at fast food places now, just as there was then. And there's clearly yeah. people who lack means who don't have access to really good food or don't have the economic means to get at it. And that was true then. And it's true now. Sure. But, uh, you know, of those who have stressed and have means, uh, without question, I mean, the quality of what's available is enormously better. Or you said earlier that you're reading The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. 
And I already read it, yeah. The book, it talks about overcoming the naysayer within. Did you have a naysayer yeah. within, and do you still have one? It's still there. I got a whole audience full of them. <laughs> How <laughs> do you manage do. that? Um, do you, is it kind of like a push-me-pull-you type situation? or? Yeah, totally. Well, part three of the Guide to Good Leading is all on managing ourselves, so it's that's like whatever, 350, whatever pages, that's all the various things that I learned and do. But, I mean, it's lots of therapy, lots of self-reflection. I journal every morning, you know, being around good people. Uh, the new book is all about beliefs, and so starting to understand that a lot of what we believe and believe to be genetic is not genetic. It's what our taught us, best friend taught us when we were six, or what society taught us through the news. And, and we, we sort of internalize those beliefs as if they're the truth, but they're really just beliefs, right? So, uh, you know, the kinds of foods for just for conversation's sake on a culinary level that are, you know, if you go to Oaxaca in Mexico, fried grasshoppers are like eating French fries, right? It's totally no big deal. If I bring it out to dinner tonight at the Roadhouse, people are going to flip out. Uh, you know, if I bring meat to a table in India, they're going to flip out. You know, I mean, so it's, it's, we have all these beliefs and, and starting to, uh, I guess, untangle which are the beliefs I really want and that really serve my own values and, and, and worldview and vision and which are the ones I inherited from my parents, my society, you know, et cetera, that I can let go of because they're actually getting in my way. Uh, and a lot of those are, you know, negative self-beliefs uh, that we, if we have negative self-beliefs about ourselves, it never ends well. True. Let's talk a minute about your books. We've alluded to them a couple of times uh, already. And earlier you mentioned that you don't get involved so much in providing advice for the industry, but that you sweat the details. But at the same time, you published several books about business, leadership, service, and so on. So um, the books seem like a wealth of information, and I am definitely going to get one. But do you have any success stories to share from someone who read and studied your books? Oh, yeah. There's tons. I mean, the impact is huge. I mean, there's nonprofit in Slovakia that wrote a vision based on what they learned. There's people using the techniques. And, you know, a lot of this is stuff I've learned and assimilated or reoriented or reformatted from other people because we're all learning from each other. But, yeah, I mean, just yesterday morning I went to work at the Roadhouse at about 6.30, 7 o'clock. One of the women who works out there goes, i got to tell you this story. My 11-year-old, it's her stepson, actually. So my 11-year-old, he's starting football, and he is feeling really incompetent, and he's really down on himself. And so, like, I talked him through, like, how to create a vision, and we did it verbally. And now I'm going to have him write it down. And already he came home two days later, and and she goes, how did it go? He goes, well, it went okay. He goes, I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to be better. (laughs) Nice. Right. So this is something that's a technique that somebody, you know, who works with us learned through the internal classes and the books. And it's already look, I mean, think about the difference that makes in the trajectory, right, of an 11 year old. So if you go down the really self-critical path or you can go down a more human because perfection is in human, go down a human you know, path that allows you to improve and grow and build self-esteem and think of the trajectory difference over 20 years. It's enormous. Can you talk a little bit about uh, visioning, how it's changed, and what's next? What's your vision now for the company? Well, vision, and we, we wrote the one I mentioned before, 94 for 2009, and then when we were getting close to finishing that in 07, we spent a year and a half in 06 and 07 writing the next one, which was 2020, uh, and that one is about nine pages long. It's in the back of part one of the business book, or if people email me at ari at zingermans.com, I will happily send them a copy of it, but we're now shockingly getting close to the end of that one. So 
two months ago, we just began the conversation to work on the next one. And I don't know what it's going to say. <laughs> I got my opinions, but it's, it's, we're do it by consensus of all the partners. So it, it'll be a long and sure at times challenging set of conversations. And is that generally the ethos of the, the company is that you guys do a lot through consensus? Uh, we work at the partner level. We make all the decisions about consensus. Uh, some of the management teams and the businesses use consensus. And then we, I mean, everything's pretty collaborative. We're not big on autocratic stuff. I'm not big on hierarchy. That's my anarchist orientation. But, uh, and then all our meetings are open and stuff. So we're, we're very inclusive and certainly far from perfect. We screw up regularly, but, uh, but we screw up together. <laughs> <laughs> You said um, you quoted Isaac Asimov in which he says to not give up on people and continue to believe in their good. Yeah. What do you do when you meet someone who turns out to be a bad apple? Extra training or a, a quick well, just a good them? apple. They're just a good apple that's not behaving well. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is the whole core of the new book. I mean, it's just my learning about this, which is relatively recent for me. It's not something I ever thought much about until four years ago or so ago. But uh, in the book, I, I obviously it's a 600 page book. I write a lot about beliefs, but I sort of broke beliefs out into three broad, you know, very simple categories, positive beliefs, neutral beliefs and negative beliefs. Uh, neutral beliefs don't do a whole lot. Negative beliefs inevitably create negative outcomes and positive beliefs create positive outcomes. So uh, if we hold negative beliefs and most of us do, unless you become very self you know, aware about it, we hold negative beliefs. Uh, and when we hold negative beliefs, it's going to lead to negative outcomes. And what Asimov is saying, which I agree with, is it's a choice what to believe, right? So you could believe the person is a good person, in which case it'll self-fulfill into increasing the odds of them behaving well. Or you could believe they're a, a, a I'll save it, I'll save the swear words, but you could believe, you know, something really bad about them, which increases the odds of them behaving badly. And what he's saying is it's true that sometimes you have hold to positive beliefs and they still behave badly, but I guess I just, I agree with them and I just choose to believe people intend to do well. And, you know, even people who politically or whatever, I completely disagree with. I, I feel, I believe pretty strongly they believe they're doing the right thing. I don't agree with their conclusions, but I still believe they, in their world and their tiny uh, piece of the ecosystem that they're choosing to view, it seems like the right decision to them. And they're convinced from the heart that that's the right thing. I don't think they sit down and go, how can we do evil? They just, we have different views on the world. So, so yeah, I agree with Asimov and I, you know, but I, I wouldn't have always said that. I just have, you know, learned to be much more conscious of what I believe and how it's impacting my life. And it's a lot more rewarding when you just choose to believe the person's a good person who made a mistake because We've all made them. So Inc. Magazine called you the coolest small company in America. Can you share a little bit more about that? That's really exciting to hear. Well, uh, you probably have to ask them because they're the ones who decided we were. But <laughs> I, I don't, uh, I love the press and I read a lot, but I don't, I don't, I try not to rise or fall based on what other people say. But it was a nice compliment. I mean, we were on the cover of Inc. Magazine. I mean, I think it's certainly good PR in, in the context of your work. It, it increases the number of people who are drawn uh, to come here, whether being drawn to come here means buying food on mail order, buying the books, buying uh, seats at a Zing train seminar, et cetera. But uh, I think also it's very, you know, in the context of negative self-talk, it's very positive. Those kind of things are very positive for the people who work here because for them, it helps to build their self-esteem and, 
you know, we're in an industry that's, it's a, it's a lot better now than it used to be 30 years ago, but there's not a lot of people getting positive reinforcement for their families from working in food. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the only ones who are getting it are the star chefs and that's, you know, one tenth of 1% of the, of the world. So it's, it's, you know, mostly you're, you know, people ask you when you're going to get a real job or, you know, <laughs> down on you because you're in service or in cooking or whatever. So I think it helps people to, to have a greater sense of positive self-image, uh, which is a huge, a huge plus for them in their lives in general and, and in the quality of their work too. And what are some of the things you do on a daily basis to make sure people have that positive self-image? That they have it? Well, I try to give a lot of positive reinforcement, you know, which is me, you know, learning different ways than how I grew up. I mean, not that my family wasn't very loving, but they showed love by telling you what you did wrong, always <laughs> in your own interest. You might have grown up in a similar family. It's uh -huh. you know, well-meaning, oh, yes. well high-achieving family uh, where they're excellent in pointing out your failures in order to help you, uh, you know, which isn't a terrible thing in some ways, but it doesn't really, in the long run, it, in the long run, it peters out and it creates a lot of problems later, I, I think. Yeah. So I've learned the hard way that focusing on the positive, not to the exclusion of looking at honest ways to improve, but that focusing primarily on the positive uh, works better and people respond better. And, you know, this is this approach is much more focused on, you know, let's be real. If the busser did a great job of clearing a table, my job is to make sure I notice. Uh, if the host did a wonderful job of greeting, people, my job is to notice, uh, you know, and to give a lot of compliments and, and also to help you coach people and how to improve. So I don't mean it's all happy talk because clearly if I can't help them grow and improve, I'm not doing my job, but it's, we, we have a recommended ratio that's about four parts praise to one part constructive criticism. And I'd actually probably like to take it even higher than that. So th those are all helpful. And then, you know, the things that help me, I mean, is just teaching, you know, we have an internal class on managing ourselves, right? So that we're teaching people about emotional resilience and about the impact of, you know, negative self-talk. We teach people about energy management because the energy you bring to any interaction, whether it's on a date or whether it's at work or whether it's with your child or your parent, you know, we, we basically create the setting that we're frustrated with or feeling good about through our own energetic interaction. And you know, it can be really hard to do in sensitive settings, right? So the more we teach people about energy management, the better they are able to, to manage the, the setting in which they find themselves. And, you know, sometimes it's very difficult. It could be a, a very hard conversation with somebody at work or out of work. It could be uh, you're getting a lot of flack from somebody who's acting out on you, you know, who's not managing themselves well, but you're still paying the price in the short term. So learning to, you know, in essence, turn the other cheek or to breathe deeply and not get caught up in it. Uh, is advice probably the world at large could benefit from. Yeah. But but how do you manage to say, stay so mindful? How do you remind yourself? I work at it. Uh, it's it's I don't do it perfectly every day. I mean, no one does. But uh, you know, all the work I've done that I, again, I you know, I tried to synopsize most of it in in the managing ourselves book. But in the in the day to day things that came out of that work that I hold to are I journal every morning. Okay. Uh, I'm a huge fan of journaling. I think it's it's the best investment I make is, you know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 25 minutes, just to clear my mind in the morning costs you almost nothing. And if it saves you one bad decision a day, it's a super great investment. Yeah. I run every day, usually in the later afternoon or evening. 
uh, which helps clear my mind really as much as it keeps my body going. And then I like to cook. That's why I ended up in the food business after I, I just really just started as a dishwasher to get a job, but I, I came to love cooking. So uh, we cook dinner at our house every night, my girlfriend and I, and unless we're on the road, uh, we always cook. Just wrapping up here, you are speaking from a position of success. You have been behind this business for 35 years. You've watched it bloom at your fingertips along with others that you work with. What would you offer as some advice? Because not everyone who's listening is going to be in that position of success. So people who are new to their businesses or who are maybe struggling, what's the one piece of advice that you might um, offer them to to give them some inspiration? Well, with all due respect to the question, I guess the first advice I would say is there's no one piece that's going to fix it. <laughs> you know, studying anarchism, I've learned to really stop thinking hierarchically and to realize that everybody and everything is impacting everything else. And so the reality of life is that it's complex and there's a lot going on all at the same time. But honestly, the books are an attempt to share the, a lot of the things that I wish I had known when we opened. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of them, uh, everything from the visioning to uh, understanding that uh, there's an essay in part one called 12 Natural Laws of Business, which would be a good read for people because uh, it's my belief that all successful organizations, whether it's yours or ours or a jazz band that's doing well, they're all living in harmony with those natural laws. And, you know, so when you look at those, you know, one of them is, successful organizations do all the little things everybody else knows they ought to do, but they don't feel like doing them and the successful ones do them. So I think that's always, it's always true. You know, Michael Jordan, I grew up in Chicago. He was the best there was, and he was always out there shooting free throws before everybody else got there. And he stayed watching game film after everybody else <laughs> left. Uh, musicians that are great practice more. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, another one is that it takes a lot longer to make something great happen than most people think. You know, the world is being trained to focus on seemingly overnight successes, but the reality is there, there really aren't any. I mean, unless winning the lottery counts as a success, and I would say that's more just luck. Every, everybody that's doing something great has been working their, their butt off, and if you, I guarantee you if you find a 19-year-old musician who got a hit record, they've been playing since they were three, and they probably skipped school and spent you know, 80, 60, 80, 90 hours a week in their bedroom rehearsing. So by the time they're 19, They've got, you know, the 10,000 hours that Anders Ericsson came up with in his study on what made people successful. So things like that, I think, are, this is beliefs, right? People believe if they're not a huge success in a year, they're failing. But it's like, we're all, I'm still failing every day. You know, it's just going forward. You know, pick your metaphor, but whatever. LeBron James misses one out of every two shots. He makes $20 million a year for it. It's, it's, you know, as Ashi said, I mean, it's really more that you two steps forward, one step back or one and a half steps forward, one step back. And the vision helps a lot because you're clear on where you're going and you've shared it with other people. So you're committed to it in the same way that, you know, whatever, when somebody I run every day, but I don't run races, but people who run marathons, you know, just naturally, they, they envision themselves crossing that finish line and they've told all their friends they're running the marathon. And so <laughs> It's inevitable. Partway through, you want to stop. In fact, every few minutes, you might want to stop. But you're so determined to get to that vision that you set and shared that you keep going. And I think when people don't have a, a clear vision and they haven't shared the vision with their friends, family, and staff, it's a lot easier to bail. Yeah, you're going to stick with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you for your time today. Your words of wisdom are fantastic. Definitely will take them to heart. And I hope that what you've had to share today will inspire our listeners to help them to grow both professionally and personally and be better business people. Thank you, Ari. 
Thank you. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you. Ari. That's all for this episode of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel, produced by the World Food Travel Association. Join us next time where we learn from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. We'll meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, eat well and travel better. Eat well and travel better.